Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you all for being here. It is so exciting to see such a good-looking crowd (laughs) coming out. I am thrilled to be here talking with Rachel Neuer, who I think, just full disclosure, we are friends. (laughs) We're good friends. (laughs) We are. Um, But I love Rachel's writing and reporting and loved reading this book. I I found it a beautiful read, just... Uh, like a detective story almost, and it opened my eyes to a world and a chemical that I had not really known about before. So Rachel, just to start, your first book took on the global wildlife trade, and it was a thrilling read. And this is about a single chemical, (laughs) about a drug that is not legal right now. Why such a big pivot in your reporting? Well, um, I'll say that my Sierra editor, Paul, here will probably agree with me that the illegal wildlife trade is not the most uplifting of topics to spend a decade (laughs) reporting on. Uh, At the beginning of the pandemic, I was in New York, locked down in my apartment, and just realizing that I was really craving something new. I I wanted a change from just being pigeonholed as the dead animal reporter. Uh, and uh, I may or may not have been on MDMA at the time I was thinking this question over. <laughs> and suddenly it came to me, oh, MDMA. And I thought, okay, has anyone written a book about this? Like, let me just uh, put a pin in that and check on this tomorrow. Um, and I did some Googling the next day and thought, okay, you know, there isn't a new book about MDMA. Maybe this is the answer. And um, I actually sent an email to uh, Gould Olin back here and said, she's this amazing neuroscientist who's worked with MDMA. And I asked her, you know, do you think this is a good time? And she's like, yes. So that sort of launched me on this new adventure. But yeah, I was just craving a new challenge intellectually. And I really felt like MDMA deserved its own story. You know, Michael Pollan did an excellent job with LSD and psilocybin, but um, MDMA also has its own story. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you brought this story to the world. And speaking of where we are in the world, in the Bay Area, I understand that this is a pretty important location in uh, in this drug's (laughs) history. Yeah, so I just love to orient everybody about a little MDMA history. Um, So the story begins not in the Bay Area, um, but Christmas Eve 1912 in Germany, the uh, German pharmaceutical company Merck issued a patent for MDMA. And they weren't actually after MDMA. They were after a blood clotting agent. And MDMA was just a chemical intermediary on the steps to get to that desired product. Uh, Now, Merck denies that they ever discovered MDMA's psychoactive properties. They say, no, you know, we did not give MDMA to humans. But they also stopped answering my emails when I was asking them to see their archives. So, you know, that's a that's a mystery for someone else to dig into. MDMA pops up again here in the U.S. in the 1950s during an exceptionally um, shameful chapter of U.S. history. This is when the CIA and the Army were uh, giving people drugs, oftentimes against their will or without full disclosure, in their search for a chemical truth serum. Uh, MDMA, we know, is on the list of agents that the U.S. Army was investigating. What we don't know for sure is whether the Army ever got around to giving MDMA to a human subject. Uh, There is some circumstantial evidence and a document trail that points to Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, But when a source of mine asked uh, 
the U.S. government through the FOIA process to get a copy of this document. They said they couldn't find it. So again, another mystery. Now, what we do know in terms of the first person to ever take MDMA that we know by name was indeed here in the Bay Area. His name was Carl Reznikoff. Um, unfortunately, he couldn't be here tonight. Um, but he was a UC Berkeley undergraduate student, and he was absolutely obsessed with drugs. Um, you know, this was the 1970s. He was like all into LSD. And he really loved the drug MDA, which is a closely related drug to MDMA. Uh, Carl noticed that the name of one of the professors at Berkeley was uh, familiar. The name was Alexander Shulgin, which I'm sure some of y'all in the Bay Area must be familiar with. He is the famous psychedelic chemist. He synthesized something like 200 new molecules. He would try them on himself first and then invite his uh, group of friends over if he thought they were interesting. And they'd have these drug parties where they took a bunch of notes. But that's not what Carl was doing at Berkeley. He was, you know, shaping young minds. But, or sorry, Shulgin. So Carl approached Shulgin and said, hey, you know, I really like what you're doing. Can I do an undergraduate project with you? And Shulgin's like, you know, sure, my boy. And they holed up one summer afternoon in 1975 at a lab at UC Berkeley, and they synthesized MDMA. And the reason they chose MDMA is because Carl really liked MDA, but he thought, you know, methamphetamine is more euphoric than plain old amphetamine. So maybe if I add this in methyl group to MDA, that'll make something even better. Um, so they made this drug. Carl said it wasn't too hard. Um, and Shulgin sent Carl home with a little sample. And then Carl and his girlfriend, Judith, uh, decided to take the ferry from San Francisco to Sausalito. And they tried it. And they really enjoyed the experience. <laughs> and Carl reported back to Shulgin. He's like, you know, this was really cool. Um, it was interesting. It was psychedelic, but there was no anxiety or fear like there usually is. There wasn't a lot of visuals. It was more like this heart-opening um, experience that they had. So, yeah, that takes us up to and Carl. And pretty soon it found its way to therapists' couches. How did that happen? That's true. Um, so... A lot of people, when they hear MDMA, they think of ecstasy. They think of parties, of raves of the 90s. Um, in fact, MDMA was first a therapeutic agent. So after uh, Carl and Shul uh, got Shulgin started on this path with, with MDMA, um, Shulgin tried it himself the next year, 1976. And he, too, was very impressed. Um, he compared it to his favorite low-calorie martini. It was something he could take with friends and like be open and chatty, but you know, not be completely out of it. But there was also another word that kept popping into his mind when he took MDMA, and that was window. He felt like it was this opening into the heart and um, into consciousness and communication, like a window. So he shared MDMA with a friend of his named Leo Zeff. And Leo Zeff was a therapist in the Bay Area. Uh, he was actually retiring. He was literally packing up his office when Shulgin shows up with this compound. And Shulgin's like, Leo, you know, you should really try this. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm like, I'm done. I'm retiring. It's time for a quiet life. Uh, he's like, you know, I'm just going to leave this with you. Do what you will. And a few days later, Shulgin's phone rings. It's Leo. He's like, I'm coming out of retirement. I have work to do. <laughs> Um, and Leo becomes sort of the Johnny Appleseed of uh, MDMA in the therapeutic community. He shares it with his therapist friends, and uh, he, he wound up being called the secret chief among his friends because he 
played such a pivotal role in, in spreading MDMA around. And they tested it for all kinds of things um, with their patients. They found that it was really just great as a catalyst for any kind of psychotherapy, whether it was for trauma, for couples, um, all sorts of uses. But because of what had happened in this um, to LSD, you know, a decade before, you know, LSD had been very popular as a therapeutic agent. Some 40,000 patients had used it before it was picked up by the hippies and politicized and condemned and scheduled. So all these therapists really did not want the same thing to happen to MDMA. Uh, and they kept quiet about it or they they tried to keep quiet about it. And then what happened? Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so um, as things are going really well therapeutically, um, MDMA began to attract the attention of another type of crowd, and that was a recreational crowd, because, you know, MDMA, I've never done it therapeutically, but I've heard that it's really hard work. People say, I don't know why this is called ecstasy, but if you're not doing it that way, it, I can tell you, it does feel really good. And any drug that feels really good, therapists knew would attract the attention of the DEA and just be scheduled, because that was the times. Um well, people began to sell MDMA, and there was a particular group called the Texas Group. Um, and actually, I have a question for the audience. Is Debbie Harlow here? Right. Nice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, nice. Well, Debbie lived through this. Um, there was a, a gentleman at the head of the Texas Group, Michael Clegg, and he was the ringleader. He, he was a failed... Uh, Michael Clegg's not in here, is he? Okay, good. All right. Just making sure. Okay. He was a failed Catholic priest. He had been like, he described himself as a seeker. He was someone through his whole life. He was like searching for meaning and like a bigger purpose. And in MDMA, he thought he finally found his calling. He's like, this is a molecule I can use to like awaken consciousness and change the world, but also get like super rich. Um, so Michael began pumping MDMA out um, through the, the help of a chemist that he recruited here in the Bay Area. She was from the Philippines. She was working at Intel. She was this like brilliant chemist. And um, she too fell under the spell of MDMA and was like, you know, I want money, but also this molecule is incredible. Um, so Michael, with Karina's help, began making all this MDMA, selling it in centers around the U.S., New York City, San Francisco, especially Dallas, Texas. And it really took off. Um, but as it was taking off, it indeed attracted the attention of the DEA. Um, and Debbie had to go and try to run, um, I guess, try to stop Michael from doing this and talk to him and be like, please, can you just like keep it down? Can you, like It's fine, but can you not be so... like?" obvious about it. And he was just like, no, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a lot of money. This is how it's going to go. And indeed, that's how it went. Um, the DEA went to schedule MDMA. But therapists fought back. Yes, right? that's a great point. Can yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, again, Debbie and a young man at the time named Rick Doblin, who we'll get to later, um, and a friend of theirs, Elisa, um, tried to fight back. They put together a case to challenge the uh, the DEA. It was a uh, therapist, Alexander Shulgin, Harvard professors, everyone coming together to try to challenge the DEA and say, you know, this shouldn't be a schedule one drug. It shouldn't be on the list with things like heroin and LSD that are basically prohibited from any research and absolutely prohibited from use on patients. You know, we should put it on schedule three so we can move forward with research, so we can move forward with medicine. Um, and they actually won that case. The um, administrative law judge at the time, he sided with them and he said, you know, you guys are right. 
This should be Schedule 3, um, but because of the way the law works, I guess, around DEA cases, it was just a suggestion, and the DEA was like, you know what? No, we're going to do what we want. We're going to put it on Schedule 1, and that's where it's been ever since. When was, when was that? That was 1985, right? Okay. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's Schedule 1 drug, um, but there was, you know, did it continue being used by yeah. some therapists? Or an, I, mean, so, I know it continued in the party scene. Yeah, I mean, it definitely continued recreationally. I mean, it only gained traction. Um, I'll just touch on recreation really quick. So MDMA continued being popular in the U.S., but it also jumped ship. It wound up in Ibiza, the Spanish island, um, which continues to be a center for MDMA today. Um, and from Ibiza, it was picked up on by uh, British youths, especially uh, Paul Oakenfold, the DJ. At the time, you know, he was a young lad. He was there with his mates um, having a birthday party, and they discovered MDMA, and they discovered house music, and they brought this back with them to the UK, and they wanted to recreate these glory nights they had on Ibiza. So they started their own pop-up parties with house music and MDMA, and it became this complete uh, just... It was a complete change in British culture. It took it took off and it lead, it led to the advent of raves because at the time clubs in the UK were closing at like one or two AM. But at one or two AM, you know, you're still going. You're just getting going really. And people wanted to keep the party going. So raves were these illegal pop-up parties that would happen like under an overpass and a warehouse, ab abandoned airport hangars all over. Um, so MDMA brought us raves, which eventually led to the creation of the electronic dance music industry today. Um, but back to the therapy. Um, after the scheduling, you know, some people, of course, were going to continue practicing underground. But a lot of people were just like, that's it. Like, the story's over. MDMA is gone. We're never going to be able to use it. Like, case closed. Moving on. Uh, one person who did not was uh, this guy, Rick Doblin. Um, he's just like a bulldog, like super tenacious, just how his personality is. Um, he was a kid who grew up on tales of the Holocaust around the dinner table. So he had this feeling all the time, like, oh, my God, people could just go crazy at any second and like kill each other in a genocidal mania. So he was always looking for like a way to make the world a better place, a way to guard against that genocide that he heard as a, about as a kid. Um, so Rick just kept pushing and he founded a nonprofit organization called MAPS. Um, and at first, Rick was sort of like the only person at MAPS and gradually it's grown. Um, it, uh, you know, it's got hundreds of members or, or employees now. And MAPS have been the sponsor of the clinical trials that I'm sure many people in this room have heard about for MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD. And I'd love to start talking about some of those trials. How did they, you know, how did he convince the FDA to allow the trials and what's yeah. happening now? Um, so Rick's sort of stroke of genius was to go to Harvard, um, get a PhD. So he'd be, you know, respectable, like, you know, uh, put on a shirt, for example. And he was like a total hippie. Um, and he was like, the, the way to do this isn't to go underground. The way to do this is to work through the system, to go through FDA approval, to do all this rigorous science, to bring MDMA back into the light of respectability through the system. Um, so Rick at first tried to do this with, I mean, this has been like a 38 year journey for this man. Um, 
He first tried to do this with MDMA-assisted therapy for existential anxiety in terminal cancer patients. This took like a decade of, uh, this is all through the 90s. Um, he was working with a UCLA psychiatrist. Um, in the end, that sort of fell apart and he needed something new. And he thought, okay, veterans, um, you know, veterans have, so many veterans have terrible PTSD from their involvement in war. I can work with veterans and this way it's going to be an issue that is uh Republicans, Democrats, everyone can agree that this is an, a group that needs help. Um, that was around the year 2000. So it's still taken like 20 years because just of all the bureaucracy, all the red tape, all the hesitation. And meanwhile, to fund all this, MAPS has had to do fundraising. Like almost all this until this point has been donor driven. So it's taken a really long time. But finally, these results are beginning to come out. Um, the first of two phase three clinical trials, and these are the two trials needed before FDA approval, came out in May 2021. And the results were just like very impressive. Um, they blew out of the water any previous results using talk therapy or other pharmaceuticals, um, something like I'm really bad remembering numbers, but like 66 or two thirds of 66% or two thirds of participants after going through three MDMA sessions, so spaced one month apart, so only three times, came out without a diagnosis of PTSD. And these are people with severe cases of PTSD, like the average length of time they'd had it was like 16 years or something. Mm -hmm. So really, really promising results. What are some of the other conditions this drug is being evaluated? Yeah, so MAPS has really been focused on PTSD, but other groups are now beginning to open, like they've kind of opened the door for other groups to investigate MDMA-assisted therapy. So there's a group in the UK that's looked at it for substance use disorder, especially for alcoholism. They've had really promising results. It was a really small trial, but it looks really good, um, mostly just because it seems to be treating that underlying trauma that drives addiction. Um, it's being looked at for eating disorders. There's really promising results from a social anxiety trial in autistic adults. Um, it, all kinds of different things are beginning to be looked at. So can you talk to us about what it's doing in the brain and why it's working so well? Okay. So I'm going to summarize Gould's research. She can answer any follow-up questions on this. I will try to do okay. Um, okay. So we've, many people in this room have probably heard about like, oh, you know, MDMA, like it turns down activity in the amygdala, the brain's fear center, or it heightens this or that, or it pumps serotonin out. Um, so Gould's research is really interesting and very important because it seems to be getting at the real mechanism behind why it is that MDMA-assisted therapy um, and actually other psychedelic-assisted therapy is so effective at treating things like trauma. Um, and that is because in the right set and setting, when you're primed to do the work of therapy and when you're there with the guidance of someone to help you along the way, uh, your brain opens what's called a critical period. And this is a term for something I think everyone intuitively knows about. A critical period is a finite window of malleability or plasticity, usually in childhood or early adulthood, um, in which the brain is primed to learn new skills. And these are the skills that set us off for a lifetime of success. And the reasons critical periods exist is because there's just way too many things out in the world to learn for us to just be born into the world. Like, think about being born into the world, speaking every language or knowing every culture. Um, 
And some neuroscientists think that there's a critical period for like virtually every skill we have from, you know, walking, seeing, smelling, to bonding with parents, to learning culture. In the case of MDMA, um, Gould's results show um, in mice that when uh, primed to do the work, they reopen what's called a social reward learning critical period. And when someone, let's say, assuming that this, this result does translate into people, this allows a person to go in during therapy in this open state and really reevaluate the memories that have become so entrenched in the habits and literally rewire those things. So it's not that they're forgetting or erasing those memories. They're able to interact with them in a new way. And that's why, because it's in this critical period state, and they're forming these new connections, they can come out of that experience with enduring results. Um, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have undergone this treatment, and they say it's kind of like, well, one woman described it as I was like a rat in a maze before, you know, I couldn't work through my trauma, I was like, I couldn't make sense of it, I kept hitting walls, I couldn't even remember parts of it. And on the therapy, it was like she was elevated above the maze and could just see the whole picture in a different way. Um, and it's not like MDMA-assisted therapy cures you of like all bad things in your life. Um, you're not just coming out with you know a perfect person, but it gives you a touchstone that you can come back to and reference and be like, you know, it's okay. Like that's why I'm reacting this way. There are some limitations, though. Definitely. Right. Um, yeah. So people joke about like, you know, let's put MDMA in the water supply or like put it in Donald Trump's Diet Coke or whatever. Um, but again, the research shows that you need the right set and setting. You need to be prepared to do that, uh, that mental reevaluation. This is why people don't go to raves and like spontaneously get cured of whatever, you know, mental issue they have typically. Um, so one example that I found in my reporting that I thought was really telling here, um, it actually involved a white supremacist. Um, and he, his case, well, I'll, I'll tell you the story. So a researcher at the University of Chicago named Harriet DeWitt um, was running a trial on the pleasantness of touch in MDMA. So participants would come in and they wouldn't know what drug they were getting or if they were getting a placebo. They were just like, you're, you know, you're in this study. Um, and one participant wrote on the bottom of his form, like at the end of the study, um, I know what I have to do now. Google my name. And she was like, what in the world is this? And he was still in the waiting room. So she Googled his name. And it turns out he was the leader of a white nationalist faction of the Midwest. And he had just been doxxed. So she's like, oh, my God, there's like a disgraced white nationalist who I just gave drugs to. And he's saying, like, I know what I have to do. Like, is he going to go kill a bunch of people? So she's like, we have to go talk to him. So they went and talked to him and said, you know, what did you mean by that? Um, and he said, I know what I have to do now, and what I have to do is love, which is like, it seems like a spectacular result, but <laughs> um, I did get to interview this guy. His name's Brendan, um, and he's he said, you know, the reason that he really opened up in this way, um, and he did not expect it. He did not know he was being given MDMA. It was like, he was just sitting there and feeling this feather on his arm and just thinking like, oh my God, what am I doing with my life? Like, what are these choices I made? Everything is connection. Like human connections, everything, everything is love. Um, so this really came out, of, it seemed like to come out of left field for him, but he also, now that he's thought about it, is like, well, 
I think the reason I came to that conclusion is because I'd just been doxxed and I was already in that mind frame of like thinking about my life, like reevaluating my decisions, um, thinking about how did I get myself into this predicament. So he even says like a lot of my former white nationalist friends, like they take MDMA, like it's not doing anything for them, but because he was already primed to do that work, it was helpful. It's not, autom it's not an automatic. Yeah, exactly. Option. Yeah, it's like... I think there's a quote in the book where they're like, oh, yeah, if someone's an asshole, like this drug's not going to make them not an asshole. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Shame. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about what it, it does feel like, hmm. you know, whether you're, does it feel different if you're taking it uh, therapeutically versus recreationally? So, the yeah. are different? Yeah, I mean, caveat, I've never done it therapeutically. I've only heard from people that it's like, a lot of work um, and not ecstatic. Um, I've had <laughs> the opposite experience on MDMA. Uh, yeah, it's like shocker. I wrote a book about MDMA. I enjoy MDMA. Um, it is a really nice feeling for me. I am. I feel like I'm a little bit of a shallow user because I like to do it at raves. That's just my choice uh, setting. Um, you know, other people enjoy doing it like at home with a loved one or in a group of friends. I just like to dance. Um, for me, I love that it can allow me to really fully be in the moment in a way that I'm not normally in my sober life. You know, I can feel the music. I can just like be myself in this moment on the planet with all these fun people, happy people around me, hugging, loving, appreciating life, appreciating existence. Um, also, there's just these beautiful waves of euphoria. That's why people call recreational use MDMA rolling you're rolling on those waves of euphoria. All your like neurotic tendencies or anxieties are gone. And it's just a really nice break from yourself and like to be reminded of the good things. Um, oh. And actually, Danielle, <laughs> if you're okay, if I can turn this question yeah, back on go you. For it. So yeah, Danielle mentioned in the beginning of our talk, we are friends. And um, it's true. I had my first <laughs> MDMA experience recently. Um, <laughs> Together together <laughs> thanks thanks so, for yeah, Rachel. Like, i don't know like, how would you, how would you describe your experience because everybody is different um i felt uh you know i was just you know surrounded by friends i was um i was there with my partner it was in a beautiful setting i mean i just felt good and i didn't know if it was just me being happy or or what was going on and then <laughs> um and then i sort of suddenly felt really hot Mm -hmm. and a little bit dizzy and I had to go outside and sit down um I threw up which wasn't that much fun yeah. but I felt better afterwards yeah there can definitely be some negative side effects um and then after that I just felt really peaceful really you know calm I totally felt like myself mm -hmm. I think I remember like I have a lot of memories from that time where if I if I drink too much I don't exactly have a lot of memories yeah. um and I just, yeah, I had a lot of like affection for everybody around me, even people who I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> not like, did you, was it like, <laughs> um, I'm just like, oh, I'm sure their, I'm sure their mom loves them so much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Beautiful. Actually, this is a question I get a lot, which I'm curious your answer, which is, um, is that the drug? Are those feelings like imposed by the drug? Were you just intoxicated or like? Did you truly feel affection for all those I mean, strangers? I definitely in the moment did. Yeah. I definitely had more patience for 
myself and my partner and everybody around me than I probably would normally. But I do feel like the feelings that I had were genuine. And I, I, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was if people report like beneficial effects mm. from recreational, even though that's not in a curated therapeutic setting, because I sort of felt just like a little bit more at peace, you know, yeah. for for a couple weeks. Um, yeah, definitely. Afterwards. I mean, that's a great point. Usually, um, I limit my use to like once every three to four months. Um, it's usually a good rule of thumb. Some people do it even less. Um, but the recreational scene, I think, has uh, really been done a disservice because there hasn't been a lot of research on it. I mean, of course, there's no money to do research on it. So hopefully that money will start coming to look at recreational users because they are by far, you know, we're talking millions of people around the world who have used MDMA and um, people report really nice things coming out of it. I mean, yes, there's problematic relationships at time, you know, people who will say, you know, there was this time in my life I was doing too much MDMA and it was taking a toll and I had to cut back. Um, but there's been studies done out of the UK, for example, that found that, you know, people who have done MDMA at a club but come out uh, reporting feelings of awe, feeling of, of connection, happiness. And I mean, personally, after I do it, yeah, for a couple weeks after, I feel really happy. I can just look back to that experience. I feel like it's I'm kind of in this like post MDMA. Glow. Yeah, I feel like the dust got like yeah. wiped out of my brain or something. Um Let's talk about prohibition a little bit mm, and, and kind of what, what that's looked like and what are some of the consequences yeah, of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the hardest interviews I did was with a mom in the UK and her 15-year-old daughter died from taking too much MDMA. And, you know, she did not do that on purpose. She was just, uh, this mother likes to say, you know, Martha um, wanted to get high. She didn't want to die. But the reason that this happened is because, you know, she bought MDMA off the street, which is the only way you can get it, really, unless you, like, know a chemist or something. And she didn't know the concentration of what she bought. She didn't know what was in it. And it turned out to be, like, 90% pure. And she accidentally took um, something like 500 milligrams, which is a massive dose. And she overheated and there was no saving her. She died. Um, and... One thing that was a surprise to me, which seems obvious now, but that I just had never really thought about is that prohibition really drives a lot of the dangers of recreational drug use. That's because you're buying drugs off the street. You don't know what's in it. It could have a really dangerous adulterant. It could be, you know, fentanyl hasn't really been reported in MDMA, but I mean, I think it's only going to be a matter of time because it is in the drug stream. And, you know, other things, though, that have been found are things like methamphetamine, bath salts, things that are way more toxic than MDMA are not what people are looking for. Or there's the opposite problem of, you know, getting MDMA that's super pure and accidentally taking too much of it and overheating um, or having another adverse negative effect. So one thing that MAPS and Rick Doblin especially have been pushing over the years is this idea or hope that medicalization of MDMA, so once FDA approval comes, can pave the way for legalization for recreational use. And, you know, just like the way we sell alcohol or tobacco or, you know, in places like this, marijuana, um, that can be the same case for MDMA. You could go to a pharmacist, um, say, okay, this is how I'm going to be using it. This is like my plan for the night. This is my body weight. And they'll, you know, give you your MDMA and dose it perfectly for you by your body weight and give you... Um, ideas about how to stay safe, you know, drink this much water, don't drink too much water, you know, make sure you're in a ventilated place. Here are the potential side effects, you know, you might feel dizzy and anxious for a little while, you might throw up, but it's okay. Keeping on the subject of prohibition, I know that in 
our nation's history, mm. the scheduling or the the prohibition of certain drugs was part of a targeted um, yeah. going after political foes. Is that the story with MDMA? Um, I feel like with MDMA, it was really like we were already so like rabidly in the drug war that it wasn't necessarily targeting a particular group. So, you know, LSD was targeting um, the hippies because they were against the war and a threat to political leadership here. Marijuana was targeting black people. Opium was targeting Chinese immigrants. Um, MDMA, I kind of just feel like everybody was just like just drug the, bad. Yeah. And it's also just part of this like puritanical frame of mind um, we have here in the US and also in the UK where it's like, like pleasure what like yeah uh, you know no one can enjoy that exactly <laughs> like wait you're just doing this for fun um like a scientist in the uk told me uh there it's almost like oh if it's heroin okay like because you have no choice you're addicted but mdma it's like oh god our kids are just going out and having fun um i mean there was a little like uh, a little bit in the UK and here in the US too, this fear of like a, a threat to the moral fabric of society. Like what are all these crazy youths doing? Um, but yeah, I think it was less targeted than some examples mm -hmm. from the past. And, you know, I grew up in the full swing of the D.A.R.E. Same program. Yeah. and D.A.R.E. Kid. Um, definitely you know, remember messaging that it would eat holes in your mm. brain. So I feel like we have to just... Okay. To do our due diligence, have to touch on the neurotoxicity. For sure. Um, yeah. Is it neurotoxic? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, everything can be neurotoxic is just like harmful for your brain, for your neurons. Um, I mean, yes, in high enough doses, MDA definitely damages your neurons, um, especially the ones involved with serotonin. There's some evidence, though, that uh, if you stop sort of hammering your brain with too much MDMA use, like you will recover. It's OK. Like definitely there's no holes in your brain. Um, <laughs> and what, where did that come from? Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, so in the 90s, there was literally millions of dollars of government funding pumped into uh, specific labs, well, labs all over, but especially a certain lab at Johns Hopkins. And it was basically these researchers were trying to prove that MDMA was neurotoxic. So all their research was just geared at proofing this question, which is not a great way to do science. It was a really politicized process. Um, but a lot of their research, early research in the 90s was flawed because they're either giving animals like five times, 10 times the dose of the drug than any recreational user would ever do. Or they're looking at actual people who use MDMA, but they're not controlling for confounding factors like the fact that these people are out dancing all night and not sleeping, the fact that they're usually polydrug users, the fact that they're drinking alcohol. Um, so the results were not great. There were a lot of people who were criticizing them, but these were the results that were getting headlines in the 90s, um, the holes in your brain thing. Um, a turning point came, though, and this is just such a crazy story. In the early 2000s, they published a study in the scientific journal Science, which is like pretty much as good as it gets as far as peer-reviewed science. And this was just like a bombshell of a study. Um, it's They had given some monkeys uh, what was supposed to be MDMA, and some of the animals had just dropped dead. Others had had seizures. Um, and the weird thing about this study was that they found uh, massive effects with the animal's dopamine system, which was like, what? Because MDMA is typically associated with serotonin, not dopamine. Um, and the implication being that all these young ravers were going to come down with Parkinson's uh, like very soon. 
You know, there were red flags about that study. For example, ravers aren't just taking MDMA and dropping dead. We just haven't seen that. Um, ravers aren't coming out with Parkinson's syndrome. But still, this study got published in the peer-reviewed literature in this high-impact scientific journal. Um, immediately, there were a lot of questions. And lo and behold, um, about a year later, they issued a retraction because it turned out they had given these monkeys methamphetamine instead of MDMA. And how in the world this mistake got made uh, was never really satisfactorily answered. Um, they issued a retraction and they blamed the chemical company. They said, oh, we were given like mixed up bottles. And the chemical company then responded was like, uh, no, we didn't. There's no way we did that. Um, the working hypothesis on the ground, and again, this hasn't been proven, is that probably a lab tech had taken the MDMA for themselves or like maybe even had disagreed with their lab and had sabotaged the lab. So, um, yeah. yeah. So they, they kind of like stopped doing that work after that, though, because it was just such a humiliation. Yeah. I was wondering, you speak to many people in your book. Is there anyone whose story especially sticks out with you? Ooh, there's so many stories. Um, maybe I was thinking of some of the, you know, the people who found benefit. Yeah. In okay. Yeah. Therapy. Actually, there were some pretty powerful stories. There were some really, yeah. I feel like half the people I interviewed about their experience with MDMA, like by the end of the interview, I was like crying with them. Um, one woman's in, uh, story in particular, Lori Tipton, she lives in New Orleans um, and I'm from the South. So I, I just like had a special place in my heart for her. Um, her story of trauma was just, it was like, if it was a movie, it wouldn't make any sense because it was so awful. Um, her brother had overdosed or accidentally overdosed at her house on his like 28th birthday or something. He had been drinking all night and then took a pill to fall asleep and never woke up. Um, after that, her mom wound up... Um, she was like in a love triangle and killed the two women and then killed herself. Then Hurricane Katrina hit. Then she was raped. I mean, it was just like, it was a horrible, horrible thing. A, a t the type of trauma that I don't know how she continued functioning, but she just kept going on with her life as if nothing had happened. And, you know, she was having symptoms of PTSD. She was trying to find relief. She tried like every therapy possible. She tried medications. She became a certified yoga instructor. Um, you know, but she was still things were getting worse. She wound up having a baby and she would just have panic attacks every time she left the house with her baby because she's like, you know, a dog's going to eat my baby. A, a tree's going to fall in him. Um, but she said the worst thing was she would look down on her baby and like just feel nothing. She would just feel off, like no love, no nothing, just blank. And she was like, I really was thinking about killing myself just because I felt so empty. Uh, then she saw an ad on Facebook for MAPS's um, clinical trials with MDMA, and she wound up being the first person to get administered MDMA-assisted therapy in New Orleans at their clinical trial site. Um, and it was just absolutely life-changing for her. And she was actually my conversation partner in New Orleans, and it was like this really beautiful, powerful moment because I then just gave her the mic and was like, go. <laughs> but um, I'll try to just paraphrase her um, her story. Um her first session, she just didn't even interact with her trauma at all. She revisited memories of like, you know, beautiful times with her brother, with her mom, with her dad. She felt joy and just allowed herself to feel joy for the first time literally in years. 
Um, in her second session, she went back and revisited finding her mom and the, the two women's bodies. Um, and she finally was just able to feel compassion for herself, like this poor child walking in on this, but also feeling compassion for her mom and just like the horrible mind frame she had been put in and the pain her mom was experiencing in that moment and this terrible, terrible mistake her mother made. And then in her last session, um, she dealt with the rape and how much guilt she had felt and self-blame for that rape. Um, and she just allowed herself to cry. And she said she just felt held for the first time. You know, her therapists were there for her and it was this beautiful moment. And so coming out of it, you know, it's been years and yeah, she still has issues. She still like sometimes is triggered, but she is just grounded. She can feel joy. She can be present with her child and her partner. Um, she's embarked on a su successful career as a writer and also a psychedelic medicine activist. Um, she's just doing really great. And it was beautiful to witness and hear her story. The final chapter of your book poses the question, mm. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, yes. but, but I think it's worth uh, worth talking about. Can MDMA save the world? <laughs> so, yeah, so... Give us the answer. Yes. Okay. <laughs> MDMA cannot save the world. I'm sorry to say I wish it could. If only we had easy fixes like that for, for everything. Um, yeah. But, you know, I do think that MDMA can play a role. I mean, um, we were talking earlier, and it's like, you know, a, a hammer cannot build a house, but it can be part, you know, it's a tool that can be used for that house. Um, I do hope that if people can heal their trauma and feel better about themselves, feel connected to more people, feel, you know, more connected to themselves, to the world, to the planet, to the environment, on an individual basis, maybe if enough people feel that, you know, positive change will occur. And, you know, positive change comes down to individuals, us humans. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it can, it can make the world a better place yeah. if used wisely. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll leave it there. Move on to Great. questions. Yeah, definitely. Um, would anyone like to ask a question? Yes, this gentleman over here. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask about the title. Do I need a mic? or? I think it's being recorded. I wanted to ask therapy. about the title of the book, mm. um, <laughs> The Connection Between Love and the Use of MDMA. As a somewhat regular user of MDMA, I definitely fall in love every time <laughs> I've Great. tried it. And how are you drawing the connection between love and the use of this pretty amazing medicine? So um, that night when I was on MDMA and I had the idea for the book, Donna Summers came on <laughs> and I was like, that's the title. <laughs> and then I, I brought it up to my editor once I finally got an editor and I was like, I feel love. And he's like, we cannot use this title. This is like too much of a party title. And I was like, no, no, Ben, it works on so many levels. Like, yes, you feel love as a recreational user. Um, there's the, the nod to the song, but also a lot of the people I interviewed who had gone through this therapy said, you know, they felt love for the first time or the first time in years. You know, they really were able to experience self-love, love for others, and just deep, deep compassion. So I thought it worked on a number of levels. Great. Thank you. Couldn't agree more, actually. Love. Was it hard to find an editor for this? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I put together the uh, proposal. You know, it's like this 75-page document or whatever to pitch a book. My agent was not into it. Um, she was like, uh, you know, drugs. <laughs> um, and she's, but she's a great agent, you know. So she sent it around to a bunch of editors, probably like a dozen, maybe more. And uh, most of them came back and said, this was 2020, by the way, before the 
phase three study came out. And most of them were either like, Michael Pollan already wrote this book, or ecstasy is a bad drug. Why is this proposal so positive? Or uh, there's not enough to say about MDMA. However, then the phase three study came out. I wrote about it for the New York Times, and suddenly everybody was interested in this book proposal, which I'm actually really happy that all those editors said no, because I found an amazing team at Bloomsbury. Um, you know, they just totally got it. My editor was great. Um, yeah, so thank goodness for the phase three study. Yeah. I think the timing just really worked, worked out. out. Other questions? Hello. Um, thinking about research methods here, um, particularly for some of these newer studies like this phase three you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if anything different is happening in regards to um, thinking about the challenges that the classic psych psychedelics have had with blinding, right? We've mm. known since like the Good Friday experiment where they tried to blind with niacin, I think. Right. So we've known for whatever, 60 years now that nobody's fooled after right. 40 minutes. And it, pre and it presents a real challenge uh, to meet this kind of placebo, you know, double-blind gold standard for right. medicine. Is anything different happening um, within the ecstasy research? Any any different approaches being tried? Yeah, it's a great question. And like, that was actually the question my editor had in the first pass of my draft. He's like, we need something about placebos. So there's a big footnote in there. Um, so MAPS tried this and all the researchers they worked with in the phase two study. They were like, okay, we have to figure out this blinding thing. We're going to give people... Um, we'll have a placebo, then we'll have um, like a no effect placebo, then we'll have a really low dose of MDMA, something like I think 70 milligrams as a first mm -hmm. dose. And then we'll have the normal dose, which I think was like 125. Um, it turned out to backfire on them because the 70 milligram dose, like it started to get people there, but then they sort of wound up in this like anxious area, like kind of what you were talking about, I think, you know, they felt like jittery and like something's not right but I feel like where is this going it's not going anywhere what's happening and the people who got that 70 milligram actually had poorer results than the people who got the plain placebo so after that maps talked to the FDA and like you know they cleared their um their methodology with the FDA and they just decided okay we're gonna go just full dose or placebo like yes it's probably gonna be obvious to most people and to the therapists um but this is just this makes more sense and you know, one person I interviewed about this whole placebo thing was like, you know, it's it's not possible to like blind people for like just talk therapy. Like you're either getting the talk therapy or you're not. And this guy even raised the question of like, okay, is it ethical to even like use placebos in certain cases if you already know that there's like positive effects, which is a whole other thing. But um, for MDMA, at least, like that's where we wound up. Cool. Thanks. Um, can you speak to kind of what like the difference in regimen of like a therapeutic dose, like over a certain amount of time is compared to like what a recreational dose looks like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so therapeutically, usually it's like 125 as a first dose, and then a booster would be around half of that. So usually like 60 or 70 milligrams. Um, recreational, it really depends on the person. Like I have a friend who does really low, you know, like 80 to 100 milligrams. Um, I'm more in the 150 milligram camp. And then I have another friend who does 200, which is kind of like probably the max that you want to do. But it's just a personal preference. Thank you. Yes. Uh, how about in the... Just hearing those doses, I am kind of curious because I'm, so, I'm somewhat interested in the medical side. And I really agree with you about the therapeutic 
um, side of MDMA being very separate from the sort of rave culture. And knowing that you have some experience with the rave culture part of it, you know, and, and taking somewhat higher doses than, than I'm used to at mm. least, um, you know, and, and also you having had the experience of throwing up afterwards too, like, are people in the rave culture pretty aware of the physiology of mm. MDMA, like the ADH secretion and the fact that 95% of the people who die or have brain trauma are young women, premenopausal women, like are people in the rave culture sort of aware of that? And if so, are they taking steps to like, are women aware that they are more at risk than men um, from this drug? And are they taking steps to sort of avoid the hyponatremia that comes with this drug? I think the, so the hyponatremia for people who aren't familiar is like drinking too much water. Um, MDMA, especially in premenopausal women because of hormone stuff, uh, they retain more water. So, you know, if you drink a gallon, if I just drink a gallon of water, I would be peeing. If I'm on MDMA, I'm going to retain that water and that drops the sodium levels in your blood which can cause your brain cells to swell and actually kill you. So in the 90s, there were some really high profile cases of people overhydrating because they hear, oh, MDMA heats you up. So you need to like drink a lot of water and stay hydrated. And they would overkill on the water and like literally kill themselves. Um, that's not really a thing anymore, just because people have heard of those high profile cases. Um, I'm actually doing a story right now for the New York Times about this. So that's why I'm like thinking about this. Um, but as far as the recreational users, I mean, there's no like central area of information. You know, people are just out there experimenting with drugs. They get off the street. Like I made so many mistakes myself on like taking too much or too little or whatever. So that's another reason I think that we need some sort of legal system because then there can be like actual education. Like let's acknowledge that people do drugs and let's like teach people how to responsibly do drugs. Kind of like, we teach people about binge drinking and not to do so. Right, because it's, it's these issues that are holding back the other side, the therapeutic side, when people hear of stories of young women at raves. Yeah, definitely. There was a question behind you also. Um, so, um, so an observation and a, and a question. So the observation, apropos of the title of the book, is um, Barbara Fredrickson, uh, one of these great researchers in positive psychology, she has uh, a book called Love 2.0. And so she defines love as being like any positive relationship. It's not just romantic relationship. It's not erotic. And she favors like enhance upgrading all of our relationships, even with like, you know, the people who are on this, that you run into on the street, the people you run into at the gym. Um, so I just thought that might be like an interesting thing for you to look into. Oh, yeah. I'd love to read that. Um, it's yeah. It's a poorly written book um, okay but okay. um so 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 <laughs> Why yeah. we need science journalists. yeah i'm friends with her and it's like yes you you should have ghostwritten this book that's terrible book. oh wow. um great idea great data every now and then it's good but just like terribly written yeah okay um all right so the question is my, my experience is um i've suffered from depression since i was like 12 years old in various phases and stuff and i talked to uh, i'd seen this therapist for like eight years and he's got great credentials and a psychiatry degree and I asked him about um, psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And his response uh, was just like, oh, that's ridiculous. They, oh, like, wow. they don't work oh. at all. And like ketamine couldn't possibly work because it's dissociative. And I'm like, well, that's kind of fucked up because it's actually like, proven to work in studies. So like, but like most doctors in my experience, especially MDs, like they graduate from med school. Mm -hmm. And then you talked about the zone of something like your mind opens up. 
Yeah, yeah. The critical theirs thing. is yeah. like, you know, it's closed, it's barricaded <laughs> nice. over, they put uranium or something on top of it. <laughs> oh my God. And so I'm just sort of curious, like, so you've, you've talked to all these people who've had good experiences, mm-hmm. they're advocates and they're yeah. sort of open. Um, do you, have you had any experiences with like therapists like mine where they're like mm. just mindlessly yeah, close I, to the experience and the data? So before I talk about my experience, I just want to make a point connected to that, which is so a study just came out um, like last month or something about where people get their information about drugs from. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't talk to their doctors because of this reason, because doctors, like many doctors inevitably are like, oh, well, drugs. Um, so yeah, people tend to turn to the internet, to their friends and to their own experiences. So again, we really need better drug education. And like, we need our doctors to be educated about drugs, which right now, I don't think many medical schools, if any, are doing. Um, I do think it's starting to get better just because of all the news. Um, in terms of my experience, I didn't really bother interviewing anybody who was just like, no, because like, they're not an expert on drugs, clearly. Um, I did get some outside comments for the New York Times story I did on the phase three study, where I had some really negative comments, but they were more like, oh, the, like this, this could be dangerous. We don't know yet. We just need more data. We need more data, which is like the classic scientist line. Um, the most negative person, though, that I spoke to was this former professor from Duke. He's like an emeritus researcher now. Um, he was actually an editor of the DSM. Excuse me, hold on. And even he tellingly was like, I think like this is overblown, but I think that we should legalize drugs because prohibition has done more harm than the, the war on drugs. So even like the, wor- the not the worst person I talked to, but like the most anti-drug person I talked mm-hmm. to was like, we should get rid of prohibition. I mean, I think if we're going to be here talking about how good these things can be, it's also important to acknowledge that, yes, due to prohibition, we have some serious problems in the supply chain. And we do have things like in a long time ago, there was the beginning of the program, Ask Alice from Columbia, uh, which is basically a place where you could go as a forum online where you could go and read up on effects of drugs and what the good things are, what the bad things are. As a health teacher of mine in, in high school once said, if there weren't any good things, no one would do it. Um, but there are real risks to it. Um, and we now have operations like dance safe that can sell mm-hmm. you a kit and you can test to make sure there isn't fentanyl in your drugs of any kind. Definitely. And you need to test everything today. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and now we're getting car fentanyl and other things that are mixed in as well. And if, if you're going to do these things, do it responsibly, do not take drugs that you have not taken before from a different batch, even if they're from the same supplier, without doing a test kit. It is life or death. And if Great nothing point. else, yeah. no one wants MDA when they want MDMA. Yeah. I know, right? Rachel, what are you <laughs> even if it's not dangerous. Um, that's, yeah, I'm actually really happy you brought that point up. Um, I've become like crazy about drug testing because um, I'm like, I wrote the MDMA book. Like, I need to have the good MDMA. Um, but there's... I've actually like graduated beyond Dance Safe. Dance Safe sells like at home test kits, which can basically test for the presence of things. But I send samples of my drugs off to a lab in Spain. It's called Energy Control. Everybody, write this down. Um, you can send them a sample and pay. Um, you know, if you can, af- well, if you can afford drugs, you can probably afford the testing. Um, you pay them like seventy or a hundred bucks, and they'll not only test for impurities, they'll test for concentration. So that way, you're not overdoing it, but you're also getting where you want to go. We have some, yes. This division 
division between therapeutic use of MDMA and recreational. So I just need to make a comment. Um, Debbie and I did a research study ages study. ago, 19, beginning in 1987. And what we found was people who went into the experience thinking they were going to party, they did party, but they also afterwards talked about the benefits they got therapeutically, connection, all of those things. And the people who were using MDMA for therapy came out of it saying, this was really fun. <laughs> so I just had to make that. Comment. I love that. I love that study, actually. It's a, yeah, it's a fantastic study. Do you need did more you, studies? Did you have like a that? question, too? Hmm? In the black and white sweater? Or were you. Thank you. Um, getting back to the source, um, I'm curious about the material, I guess the substance that's used in the clinical trials. Is there a single source, a single supplier, a company behind oh, this is such that an is interesting providing question. something that's reliable, <laughs> high purity, well characterized, and eventually, hopefully, to be regulated? Okay, so for the pretty much any MDMA trial you've ever heard about, the source comes back to this like two or three like kilogram load that David Nichols, a psychopharmacologist at um, Purdue, synthesized in like right before, like 1985 or something. And really interestingly, those drugs were made, um, Rick Doblin like commissioned this for studies moving forward and they were kept in a safe at Purdue. But Rick Doblin paid for the drugs through sales of ecstasy tablets that had been donated by Michael Clegg, the head of the Texas group. So when Debbie and Rick went to try to talk to Michael Clegg, this like drug ring leader to be like, please stop what you're doing. Just like chill out. Michael uh, at the end, Debbie was like, can you just like at least give us some money or something? Like if you're going to keep doing this, like give us a donation for the trial. And Michael was like, I won't give you money, but I'll give you some drugs. <laughs> Debbie was like, absolutely not that we cannot have this trial like tainted by Michael Clegg drugs. But then Rick was like, yeah, I'll take those drugs. <laughs> so Rick took the drugs and um, sold them and used that money to buy this MDMA that has now gone through all the clinical trials. Um, but in terms of moving forward after FDA approval, um, MAPS will have data exclusivity for five years. So they will be you know, working with a, like a pharmaceutical manufacturer to make Great. MDMA. How how does MDMA fit in therapeutically with other with the psychedelics? I mean, are there if you're a therapist, how do you decide which one to use for what Ooh, issue? Great question, Paul. Um, so just to like bring it back to Ghoul again <laughs> in the back, um, Ghoul just had this incredible study come come out yesterday in the journal Nature finding that it's not just MDMA that reopens the critical period. It's a whole suite of psychedelics. It's Ibogaine, it's psilocybin, it's LSD, and it's ketamine. And they all do the same thing. So, And her findings are down to the, the level of gene expression. So like forget receptors and all this stuff. Like these are really fundamental mechanisms. So ultimately, it seems like all psychedelics therapeutically are acting through the same pathway. 
And, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, you might just go for something light like ketamine to something like really heavy like Ibogaine where you're looking at like a 36-hour trip. Um, And her findings also intriguingly revealed that the length of the time that your critical period is open corresponds to the length of time for the trip in human users. So, for example, ketamine is like, you know, a 30-minute-ish trip. In mice, the critical period was open for like two days-ish. Okay. Whereas Ibogaine, for example, you're looking at like a 36-hour trip up to. And in mice, they were still in this open state when she stopped taking measurements like a month later. So maybe that's why, for example, with ketamine for depression, you have to repeat the the treatment over and over like every few days or every few months. Whereas with Ibogaine, we get these reports of, um, you know, people with really horrible addictions going in, doing it once, and it's like one and done. You're out. Like, it works for life. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm Judith. I'm the person. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm Judith. I'm the person who took the ferry oh, ride with Carl Resnikoff. Nice to meet you, Judith. 1975. I was, I was 18, but had faked a lot of papers saying I was 19 or 20. Um, <laughs> That's incredible. So I, I'm glad I made it, and I'm sorry Carl couldn't. We're, yeah. we're, we're still friends. <laughs> we had a big gap where I didn't speak to him for a long time, but um, it kind of gets into... One of the topics I want to touch on, which is the one of forgiveness and leaving things behind. Okay, that happened. It hurt. I can still tap into that hurt, but here we go. Here we are. Try to live in the moment. I wasn't very good at living in the moment when I was in late adolescence. Um, It's been a learning experience. And that gets me in a roundabout way to the idea that I agree with people back here who were saying that it's hard to draw a sharp off-on binary between psychotherapeutic use and recreational use. I'm someone who doesn't trust psychotherapists very much, and I have been a mental health counselor in one form or another. Right now I'm teaching public school, but I started working with very disturbed adolescents when I was still in my own late adolescence. Uh, I know a little bit about the world. Um, My father and I used to have this conversation. I'm not sure whether or not my father was in on the LSD experiments back in the early 60s or not, and we will never know. He's gone now. But my father was someone who really believed that it was psychotomimetic and you should only trip uh, because it produces this temporary psychosis around a licensed psychiatrist. I said there's no one I'm less interested in tripping with. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there's tremendous value. My father's older sister, who was one of the eldest people to make the psychedelic scene in the 60s and beyond, she had an MDMA experience that was really interesting because maybe it's genetic. It's kind of my personality, too. She was doing what people would consider a, I don't know, low number recreational use. She was with a group of friends near her home in Santa Cruz and everybody was feeling good about one another. And she said, I have to go home and work on some stuff now. And she did. She went back to her little cottage and she sat in front of the fireplace and she said, I'm having a Christian moment. We're actually a secular Jewish family. But she decided she really needed to forgive. And she sat down and she wrote letters to friends and family 
uh, saying that she wanted to be forgiven for the ways that she felt she had screwed up, and she hoped that they could forgive them. I didn't get any money. I guess she didn't think she owed me one. She wrote one to my mother. She was my dad's sister. Um, and I don't know where that falls. I think maybe there's a spectrum, if it's even divisible into a spectrum, between I'm going to go work on a therapist who will guide me through all of this, and uh, I'm going to go feel good by going to an all-night dance with, you know, 150 close friends. Uh, you know, somewhere in between, and I think a lot of this has to do with personality stuff we don't understand. I will say that personality psychology is probably the softest and less easy to really say anything meaningful of all of the branches of psychology. Everyone's got a personality theory, and I just don't, they, they don't hold up well under study. But given that, I think some of us do tend more toward introversion and will find whatever the setting that the ability to look within gives us an insight and that there are various ways to aid that process. And for me, MDMA could do that, and that's about all I'm interested in. I'm not a crowds person, you know. I don't like people getting too close to me. I'm probably the only person who was a teenage hippie who had absolutely no regrets about not making it to Woodstock. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I really value the times that I've had to sit and uh, do my own seeking in my own way, and I think MDMA can be a tool for that. Thank you, Judith. That's so wonderful to have you here. Well, I'm pleased to join me in thanking Rachel one last time. And Daniel. (laughs) Thank you. And I'll be hanging out if anybody had a question that we didn't get to. Okay. Our gratitude to Rachel Neuer and Danielle Venton for being with us today. We're also grateful to our audience here, as well as to those listening to the recording. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 120th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.